MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. This is the final episode in the eight-part series covering the book Here, Right Matters by Colonel Alexander Vindman. And he is joining me today from the Watergate Hotel to answer your questions about his book. Alex, hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I, I After this, I need to run downstairs to the management and tell them that their coasters need to be corrected because they're talking about you know the 19, 1972 uh, break-in as the biggest scandal. Obviously, that's <laughs> not true. That's dated. But maybe it's the biggest scandal at that hotel. Yeah. Biggest <laughs> political scandal. I need to qualify it. Biggest political scandal at the hotel. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting way to advertise for yourself, too. Come stay at the Watergate. Re- relive the 70s. Um, anyway, it's it's really great to talk to you. We've got a lot of um, subscriber submitted questions and comments today to go over. But first of all, I just wanted to, you know, kind of sum up the book here. I mean, it's there's a lot in there from your early life um, and talking about your ancestors in Ukraine uh, and all the way up to the present. And well, you know, to to the present when the book came out, I should say. Uh, and what's interesting, and I think is of note, is that there are current uh, ongoing criminal investigations in both the Southern District of New York and the Eastern District of New York about Ukraine uh, and the shadow government, the shadow policy uh, that was being run by Rudy and Lev and Igor and, and you know, over there um, with the help of Dmitry Furtash, who we're still learning uh, quite a bit about and we've been discussing for several years. Uh, I just want to jump ahead to right now with those investigations. Have you been a part of those, contacted at all? I mean, you're one of the top leading experts in, in Eastern Europe, European and Ukraine. And I was wondering if uh, you had any, you know, inside knowledge of, of those probes. Uh, so frankly, I probably, you know, uh, if, if there was anything substantive, I couldn't couldn't comment on it. Uh, there have been uh, some uh, some uh, I've spoken through my attorney to to some some of these things. But um, I don't know if I actually it's not something that we probably need to get into, but it's it, these are serious investigations. Um, these are really kind of these are looking retrospectively at, at something that unfolded a couple of years ago. I mean, there is all sorts of uh, of uh, stuff that continued to roll through that rest of that um, rest of that administration. Mark Meadows held in contempt. Mark Meadows also figured prominently into uh, some of these events. He he was the one that called in the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of the Army. You know, my last couple of days in, in uniform and proceeded to break them uh, up about the idea of putting my name on the promotion list 
having been selected by just army officers to, to, to um, become a colonel. So uh, these, these folks are slowly being exposed for who they are too slow, probably for most of the public, but that's just the way things are. Um, I just put it in the historical context, staying at the Watergate, the folks that were responsible for that break-in didn't face just uh, and for the cover-up, subsequent cover-up didn't face justice for years, two and a half to three years before those car, uh, those uh, folks saw courtrooms and then uh, saw um, or uh, criminals uh, sentences. So it's just the way things are. Uh, it just feels a lot more urgent now because we might not have two or three years to to uh, expose uh, the corruption and and take actions to harden our democracy. Yeah, I think um, what's interesting is that while we we run the risk of uh, losing the House, which I hope we don't, or I should say Democrats, I should, you know, losing the House at the end of the year, having that investigation, the January 6th panel shut down, uh, that doesn't preclude the Department of Justice from continuing any investigations made or, you know, that are criminally referred to them. And I, I've, I've tweeted about this yesterday. I find it very interesting that Liz Cheney is using verbiage from a statute um, that 18 U.S. Code 1215C2, I think, that says, you know, they're obstructing an official proceeding. And an- another person was just arrested. A Florida man was just arrested for for his involvement in the boots on the ground insurrection for the same uh, charge. And, you know, apparently it's it's easier to prosecute than something like treason or seditious conspiracy. And I just find it very interesting that um, I I personally think that the reason she's using that language is because they perhaps intend to, if they have the evidence, submit criminal referrals for the leadership of the insurrection for obstructing an official proceeding. And a judge just ruled last week that the Department of Justice can use that statute when prosecuting. It has an up to a 20 year sentence. Obviously, that's the max. And and, and a lot of these folks don't have criminal records, but. I, I find it very interesting, but yeah, it is it is slow going. Um, it's definitely frustrating, I think, to a lot of uh, a lot of Americans. I think you're right. I think um, it's interesting that the, the investigate the January sixth uh, uh, committee is likely to be shut down uh, come twenty twenty three because just the, the American public in general is not not really focused on these issues, and there's likely to be a kind of a historical reversal for uh, midterm elections, which is you know is troubling. Uh, because the the threat from uh, the from the Trump wing of the Republican Party, which has really captured the party, is is really high to democracy. But it doesn't end um, the Department of Justice investigations. As a matter of fact, I could conceive of a scenario in which there's a special prosecutor uh, named that leaves this thing going. You know, in the uh, sometime later uh, in 2022. Or even after after uh, the election in 2022, a special prosecutor is named, and then that special prosecutor is is able to to serve uh, for at least another two years without having without fear of being fired by the president because Biden will be in office until 2024. Something like that could play out. Yeah, and and I you know I've heard tell that perhaps this particular Department of Justice or or Merrick Garland right now is insulating himself from politicization by waiting for criminal referrals from the inspector general department of justice and maybe congressional recommendations of criminal referrals uh but you know it's it's important that you bring up that watergate timeline as you sit in the watergate hotel because it it wasn't until 13 months after the break-in that we even had public hearings and that is exactly on track for this uh insurrection january 6th committee public hearings which are supposed to take place 
weeks of public hearings at the end of January. And then, as you said, about eight months after that was when the indictments started coming. Sure. Um, unfortunately, that puts us, I think, within the you know, 60 right around the election when when the Department of Justice doesn't like to drop indictments that might have be political in nature. Right. Um, but we you know, we will see what the Department of Justice does and how they how they intend to handle this. Uh, Merrick Garland has said it is his number one focus and he will go all the you know, he, he'll investigate yeah. everything about it. Uh, but we'll see. Yeah. I think there's another intersection you, you, you started talking about, you know, uh, you, the Ukraine investigations is, uh, frankly, if uh, Trump hadn't tr- attempted to steal an election as early as the, the first impeachment or the events that resulted in the first impeachment, so 2019, we probably wouldn't be face, facing the same kind of challenges in terms of geopolitical stability that we are now. Because... That was that was an ongoing enterprise that uh, resulted in January 6th. It was also an ongoing enterprise that resulted in the perception by our adversaries, by Russia, that we are vulnerable, that we are divided, that we are divided internally. We're divided from our allies. And this is the opportunity to launch what is shaping up to be the largest military offensive in Europe since the Second World War. This is going to uh, really this could be a enormous human catastrophe. And there's no way to kind of see where this leads if we're, uh, uh, we're uh, unable to avoid it, avoid it. And I'm very dubious about whether we will be able to avoid it because you could see a scenario in which we might not feel the threat, even though it's real legitimate, real clear and present danger to us national security. We're just kind of compartmentalizing and saying, well, we have bigger threats like China, which is a long-term threat, not the immediate threat. We have uh, to focus on domestic priorities, but we can't do that if we haven't, uh, uh, if we're threatened by enemies from without. But our allies that are part of NATO and that we have obligations to feel it differently. So Poland, the Baltics, uh, Europe's eastern flank will probably not sit by and allow this situation to unfold. And on that basis alone, we could be drawn into something that we we don't want to be drawn into. So we should be applying maximum resources to figure out a way out of this. And I'm not saying that's simply diplomacy. That's actually diplomacy and a very, very, very robust pressure track to warn President Putin about the consequences of this action. And it's just not happening because of uh, all of the other things in play. Yeah. And you actually had a hand in developing somewhat uh, what that pressure track might look like uh, with the Ragoon ride. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. We'll get into the book and start answering some of our patrons' questions, but I need to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Sure. Excellent. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are here with uh, the author of the book, Here, Right Matters, Colonel Alexander Vindman. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about what's happening with NATO and Russia, Ukraine right now in the region. And I was really struck by some of the information you shared with us in the book about perhaps you were part of, uh, if you have to refresh my memory, you were part of one of the first striker brigades um, and showing that we could move extremely quickly uh, in, you know, on the ground with those brigades and with massive amounts of personnel and equipment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. It was called the Ragoon Ride, I believe. Dragoon. Dragoons are like horse mounted uh, uh, heavy um, infantry from like, you know, days gone by. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like hold. Yeah. We're Braveheart stuff. Um, So 
Uh, and and then the, that kind of force was sort of threatened by uh, the former president when he wanted to withdraw our troops from Germany. Uh, and how do you feel that those sorts of operations that you helped develop and, and take part in will play in the current role uh, with, you know, Russia massing tons of troops at the border, uh, Ukraine under threat? Yeah. And and how that might play out? Do you do you see um, do you see that sort of those sort of uh, that ride that you took that dragoon yeah. ride uh, playing a role today? Yeah. I definitely do. I think uh, it's part of the, the the mix of different levers that we have to discourage President uh, Putin of of the fact that he actually does have an opportunity to. Um, do to launch this offensive and not suffer consequences. I actually uh, I wrote a piece for the New York Times. It came out on like the whatever, like ten uh, on the tenth or so, uh, in which I kind of lay out the, the the array of different elements that we should bring to bear in order to d- dissuade, deter Vladimir Putin. And and I also say that that might not be enough just because of where we are right now. Uh, but force posture, as we call it in the military in Europe is is a, a small fraction of what it was, certainly at the high point of the Cold War, where we had hundreds of thousands of troops of where it was in the 90s, of where it was in even the 2000s. Uh, you know, we were we were shrinking the mil- the military U.S. military presence in uh, Europe in the early 2010s before this whole situation unfolded. And since then, we start we recognize that Russia is actually posing a, a threat to the NATO alliance, our allies needed some reassurance. So we started to kind of uh, adjust our, our force posture in some small ways. And we prepositioned military equipment, like brigade sets of military equipment. This is like for thousands of troops, but that's probably, that seems to have not really weighed heavily on, on uh, Putin's calculus because he's just uh, continued to escalate the situation. And we've, uh, we, we created a strategy where we push it, uh, put, Tripwire forces, as they're called in the Baltics, in Poland, relatively small presence in these countries to indicate that the U.S. does value these partnerships, that they are part of NATO Article 5, the collective defense architecture. Again, not sufficient. So one of the things that we really should be considering is changing the, the posture, at least temporarily, fairly radically. And that might mean putting a division in there. Now, we do this not infrequently anyway. We do summer exercises pretty significant summer exercise in Europe uh, on, a, on an annual basis. And one of the things that I, I, I was able to design when I was at the Pentagon based on the Russia threat was inc- making large scale deployments of U.S. troops to show that we can do that, to show that we are expeditionary, we, are, we can get to a fight really quickly and deter Russian aggression. We should actually show that in reality now. When there's a brewing crisis and what that does, it doesn't escalate the tensions. Actually, I think if anything, it, it, it's, it's a warning. We're not putting our, our troops in the line of fire. There's no real danger uh, per se, except for the danger that that uh, occurs for normal soldiers or normal military in their day to day operations. But what you're showing is that by Putin conducting these kinds of investigations, changing the security dynamic in Europe, that he's actually helping realize the thing that he doesn't want, which is a large U.S. presence in Europe. And that's one of the things that we need to do. We also need to talk about sanctions. We also really seriously need to consider all of the different ways 
that we should be arming the Ukrainians for them to be uh, to defend themselves. A country has a right to self-defense. If they want to buy stuff, we should sell it to them. We should we should not be overly concerned about how that plays out because it's the lack of us really uh, supporting Ukraine with anything but rhetoric that has encouraged Putin to take this take this course of action. And uh, if there are strategic partner, as we've said on countless t- uh, occasions over a long period of time, then we should treat him like a strategic partner. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, as as I'm watching this sort of unfold uh, over in the region now, you know, because you stood up and did what was right, a lot of that led to your retirement. And I think it's a great loss for for our military to not have you um, in in the position that you were in to be able to assist with this. Is there any way that you can as I mean, now that you're no longer in the military, can you consult outside um, at all the government in these operations? That's ex- well, frankly, that's kind of what I'm doing anyway. I mean, now instead of uh, saying it in some uh, uh, classified environment, you know, to a couple of small people, I wrote in New York, uh, an article for New York, New York Times, and it's read by, you know, a large, healthy number of people, including the people that should be reading it in the White House, you know, uh, from what I'm told. So uh, it's a, it, I could still try to weigh in on a national security in a different kind of way from the outside looking in. Uh, you know, unconstrained by bureaucracy and uh, offering my my um, in decades, a couple of decades of experience working this problem very, very closely in a way that I think is likely to keep the U.S. out of out of a serious confrontation with Russia, because that in part is really what I, I'm after. I'm it's you, we want to help Ukraine because it, there's a value proposition there. We share share quite a few values with them. They do have a lot of problems, but we share a lot of values with them. But we wanted to help them because it's in our national security interest. It's in our national security interest to deter Russia, to keep Russia at bay. We could we could take a hands off approach now in Ukraine and that buys down short term risk. But long term, that indicates to, to Putin that he he could continue to push and he will push towards a red line that we will be forced to defend. So I'm concerned about risk, but across the entire spectrum, short term medium term and long term. And that's not that's not where we're, we're only focused. We're hyper focused on short term risk. It's a problem. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, and I have to say that, you know, I've I feel like I've never felt as close to you, Alex, because I was driven out of my government job, too. Uh, and I was stymied by the Hatch Act. I couldn't fundraise, et cetera. And once I was out from under that, I was able to do a lot more. Uh, than I could from within the government, and and I I'm glad that uh, I'm glad to know that your platform now um, you you may be able to have a bigger impact from where you are now than perhaps where you were before, and I think that that's I think that that's um, a very positive outcome, and it, it it ties into one of your central themes in the book, which is don't just start over, keep starting over. Okay. Talk a little bit about talk a little bit about where you first picked that phrase up. And uh, you talk about it in the book and, and, and how it pertains today to your life. That one I can't pin down uh, as uh, where, where uh, it started. I think maybe it was reflecting on my, my uh, long career and how many times I may, may have needed to start over learning as much from mistakes as, as from uh, uh, successes and, and victories. I think I learned something from my father's experience starting over when he was still in the Soviet Union, when he was sent out into kind of the boonies in the middle of nowhere in Central Asia 
and then had to start again, uh, even though he, he had already accomplished a great deal in his in his professional career as an engineer in Ukraine. And then starting over in when he we arrived in the U.S. as refugees, my own personal experience being kind of uh, somebody had a good, good SAT word on this. I don't recall at the moment, but definitely, let's say an unfocused student and then kind of uh, having to uh, focus again. It's it's I think a regular theme uh, to, that has been important in my life. And I think it's a regular theme that most most people in life don't just end up in one spot anymore. They might need to start over a couple of times. They might need to move. They might need to switch jobs. You know, a life changing events like children. Th- that's a start over of some sort it's a healthy perspective to have that you'll, you will have to start over and embrace that instead of resisting it and uh, dwelling on, on the past looking is not healthy looking towards the future and and seeing how you could contribute uh, I think is, and that's the way I I try to, uh, you know, deal with my own uh, experiences. Yeah. And I think you're a master of, of taking what you've learned and applying it, taking what you've learned in the past, applying it to, to your current situation. Uh, every time you've started over um, again and again, you've been able to take um, your your military training, even the, even the your your young times with with your twin brother running around town causing trouble <laughs> yeah. and being able to learn from uh, take that what you learned and then moving on to when you were in the military and then when you were in ops and then mm-hmm. uh, every step forward, there's always something very important that came from where you were before that played in, you know played a large role into what you were doing at the time and i think that when you were in the position to testify in the impeachment hearings you had to draw on all of that experience personal and professional and it i think it really helped uh helped you and your moral cuz the i'm the chapter moral compass uh etc to be able, to be able to effectively do your job I think so. Somebody's uh, described it as, you know, uh, a, a memoir, but kind of also a leadership book. I haven't really thought about it in that regard, but there is maybe something to, uh, there, there are uh, leadership themes to kind of extract out of that. Uh, that could be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I want to get to these questions now and, and comments on, on the book for you. We just got one more segment, a few minutes left. I need to take one more break. Uh, everybody will be right back. Everybody, welcome back to the MSW Book Club. We're talking with the author of Here, Right Matters. Time to get the book. If you haven't, I'm sure you all have. Really, really incredible book. Lots of important lessons and really just intriguing insights into into things like starting over and also what went down during those during those hearings. And our our first question here comes from um, Jan, pronouns she and her. Uh, Jan says, has anyone from the Biden administration reached out to you in any way? It seems like your vast knowledge of Ukraine and Russia would be useful for this administration. We kind of already touched on this. Uh, no, they haven't. Uh, although I have relationships with folks that are that are friends that I communicate with, but nobody's reached out in terms of like soliciting advice. Uh, and I think, you know, honestly, it's one of the issues with the Biden administration. My 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 connections are with professionals that are serve in different administrations, they served in the Trump administration, now serving in the Biden administration, there's professional staff. I don't really have that many connections to the political uh, class. And it's a particularly insular political class. A lot of f- folks have described the current Biden administration as really uh, carryovers from uh, uh, the first Obama administration, 2008 to 2012. And they, they don't, I, I think that's to their detriment, not me, 
this has nothing to do with me, but that's to their detriment that they haven't really kind of been thoughtful about bringing in um, expertise. An example would be there are enormous numbers of vacancies in government right now, and those are not being filled. And it's unclear to me why that's the case. Uh, th- these are uh, critical ambassadorial positions. These are non-Senate confirmed uh, positions. And uh, I have a feeling that's because they're insular. So um, that's a long way of saying no, not not me, but it's a bigger issue at the at hand. Gotcha. All right. Uh, and by the way, a little correction there. That was Christine, pronoun she and her, that was asking that question. Just while you're pulling that up, I'll mention that uh, I've been participating in a, in a retreat at the Watergate uh, with an organization called the Renewed Democracy Initiative. It's kind of it's a uh, bipartisan or nonpartisan group of folks that are coming together because we all perceive um, acute threats to the democracy. And we're looking at for uh, uh, all sorts of interesting solutions, um, engaging with the public and in uh, and, and much the same way you've been with your folks uh, talking to them about what what um, what the disinformation threats are, what the internal threats are from the far right, what the external threats are. So, uh, my, my my headspace is right right in this uh, spot on democracy. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, I think that that's it, and this is the renewed democracy re- renewed democracy initiative. Yeah, correct. I'm so glad you're doing that. All right. Next up from uh, Jan, pronoun she and her. Colonel Vindman, I ordered your book on Audible the first day it came out. I had a long road trip. I was able to listen to it all at once with one exception. I decided to stop halfway at a bookstore where I bought the hard copy. The response at the bookstore, or rather the first bookstore, when they were already sold out, there were none left in the warehouse. (laughs) The sales clerk told me of a companion store in the same city, and she offered to call over to check to see if it was available. Um, And she says, anyway, here in flyover country, we recognize and appreciate and are all humbled by you, your service, your courage, your moral compass. We also recognize that our nation is forever changed because you spoke on behalf of uh, every address in the 50 states. Um, So she says, uh, I profoundly thank you. That's from Jan. Thanks, Jan. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, clearly supply chain issues there. You know, no reason (laughs) why we should have left people hanging when they wanted to get a copy. (laughs) <laughs> to how popular it was. Uh, another comment here from Katie, pronouns she and her. Katie says, no question, nothing but love and admiration for you and your family. P.S. Your wife is the best. What a sense of humor. Happy holiday season. Let's talk a little bit about Rachel, because you you offer some great descriptions in the book. Some of the things, especially like the way you wanted to propose and the way that it ended up happening. But she's just uh, tough as nails, hilarious, Midwesterner, um, two very different backgrounds. So uh, what, what, let's talk about that for a second. It's, it's all fun and games until you have to live with her. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling her you said that. <laughs> no, she's, she's great. She's, she's very, very tough. I mean, she is a, a powerful woman. Um, I'm lucky to have her. You know, sometimes it could be hard. She has very strong opinions. I think we both do. Uh, and you know, that, that leads, leads to some fiery conversations, but she's a great wife, uh, great mother, great partner. So I'm pretty, pretty lucky to have her. Yeah. And, and we are too. She's seriously one of the uh, best follows on Twitter. It's a Natsak hobbyist. If, if you aren't following her already, um, next up from Josie pronouns, she and her, uh, Josie says, did you find out who the whistleblower was? And if so, how and when? 
Also, it sounds like Fiona Hill and John Bolton knew Giuliani was conducting a shadow foreign policy and tried to keep you out of it to protect you. How did they find out before you and why didn't they warn you? Hey, uh, Josie. So um, the question about the whistleblower is I, I never really pursued this this idea of identifying the whistleblower. I know who I spoke to and I may even have suspicions over who the whistleblower is, but that's very different from knowing who the whistleblower is. Meaning like, you know, I've confirmed my information. Um, the way the whistleblower crafted the, the whistleblower complaint left, uh, was done in a, in a sophisticated manner because, you know, the person is a member of the intelligence community. He or she identified multiple sources, uh, that uh, contributed to that report. So it's to me, uh, I, th- I think I might know who the whistleblower is. I, you know, I, I probably even have some confidence over who it is, but it's not it's not something that I would ever would be even willing to speculate about because, God forbid, I'm wrong. Uh, and first of all, I wouldn't want to expo- expose that person to to that kind of criticism. But God forbid, I'm, I'm wrong. What kind of impact that would have on somebody's life that, you know, didn't do anything besides be a, v- a really good um, government official with regards to Giuliani. I think we all had uh, you know, keen awareness, at least Fiona and I had pretty keen awareness of where Giuliani fit into this uh, corruption scheme because he, he announced it himself in the uh, um, May timeframe. The question to us was really whether he was just being somebody, that, he was toadying up to um, Trump and just doing it like a henchman doing his bidding or was he acting on orders? And it turned out that he was acting on orders in that uh, July 25th phone call. Now, John Bolton, it's unclear to me what he knew or didn't know and when. Uh, he's, a, he's a sophisticated, crafty, uh, political type. And it's quite possible he knew the danger. I mean, he said to Fiona, uh, I don't want to be part of this drug deal. In a conversation, this was, uh, I think, I'm trying to remember if, if, um, if Giuliani was mentioned in that conversation. I think he was actually. So I think, you know, uh, Bolton being even closer to the president occupying an office in the white house probably had some pretty good situational awareness on what was going on, but even he, I, I imagine didn't have a particular, uh, 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 comprehensive situational awareness. There was stuff that was being done around the way government's supposed to function with Gordon Sondland talking to Mick Mulvaney, the president's previous chief of staff. And, um, you know, he, he probably had some good ideas and I think they did. I mean, they, they, there was a meeting in, on May 23rd in which I was, I received a formal invitation to, to go to the Oval, Oval office. I had it, you know, on my, my work email, I should have kept it because it's kind of cool, you know, having one of those things, but, uh, and I declined it based on, I, I said, no, sorry, Donald Trump. I'm too busy. I've got other things to do. Uh, <laughs> Because um, uh, Fiona and uh, John Bolton had a conversation and said, hey, there's some risk here. You know, we, we you shouldn't go to this um, because you could be called to testify about this. You know, well, lo and behold, I was called to testify about it uh, anyway, about the whole uh, enterprise. And I, you know, I, I guess technically I had a order from the president of sorts or a request from the president to, to go to the Oval Office or listen to my you know, immediate supervisor and my higher level supervisor and um, you know, taking all that information. I, I followed that, that guidance. I could have ended up in the Oval Office and uh, for those fireworks. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
some things you want to avoid, some things you don't. Um, the the final question we have here is from an anonymous uh, uh, submitter. Anonymous, and, of course. And this is um, this is interesting because just recently I interviewed uh, Brian Kloss, and we're going to be covering his book in the next series starting on January 9th, uh, Corruptible. And this question sort of focuses on that kind of uh, situation. The first part of it, and there's several parts, I'll just read them one at a time for you. Do you think power corrupts or corruptible people seek power is the first part? Um, I think it's probably a combination of the two. I think if you're in power long enough, uh, you are prone to, uh, uh, to, to be corrupted. Now, that's not universal. I mean, there are plenty of good people that avoid it because they had a strong moral compass. But I think there's a, a higher probability. And I think our founding fathers uh, envisioned that and our d- democratic system envisioned that with term limits uh, in that regard. Um, but corruptible people do seek power. That's what we're seeing now. We see an enormous amount of corrupted already that see a, a, way, a way to fame and fortune through office. That was definitely the case for Donald Trump. That is the case for a whole host of, of candidates. Lauren Boebert, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, uh, Madison Cawthorn. I mean, these are like the, these are the, the glory hounds, totally incompetent you know, folks that you wouldn't take serious in any kind of capacity that managed to convince enough people and win uh, office in, in really skewed electoral districts that will vote for party line. Uh, and uh, then they seek to use their power to enrich themselves. And uh, I, th- I think that's kind of the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes corruptible people are installed. <laughs> into power because they're corruptible and they kind of have to do the bidding of other people. And um, this person asked, what made you be able to withstand the pressure to be corrupted? I mean, I imagine it's all your experience. I think so. I think it's, uh, I think it's what you referred to uh, in my book, the kind of the sum total of all my experiences. Um, I guess, you know, one thing that people that know me, know is that I'm not easily intimidated. So who the heck does that guy think he is? So he's the president of the United States. All right. He's still subject to the law. He still has to do the right thing. But, you know, it's, it's a funny way of saying it, but um, I wasn't going to do something that I thought was going to be harmful to the country, uh, harmful to, to um, you know, my, my service, harmful to, to the military, harmful to my family uh, for uh, the purposes of corruption, uh, for the purposes of, you know, uh, enrichment. Honestly, that probably is something that um, has never been that important to me. Yeah, yeah. And um, finally here, this last is a very interesting uh, question. This is the last part. Are there any outside forces that could have stopped you from speaking out? Hmm. My twin brother argues that he could have been one of them. He argues that if he just said, no, I don't, this is a terrible idea, don't do it that he would have been able, be, been able to sway me. I don't know if that's true. Uh, you know, it's better not to argue that point because it could be just an endless circle that might even devolve into a fist fight with my twin brother. Uh, we're, we're super close. Um, you know, my wife wasn't in a position to do, to, to do anything like that, mainly because she was not, she didn't have privy to the information. She didn't have access to, she didn't have the security clearances. Um, and I couldn't talk to her, or talk to her about it. Uh, you know, when, when it came down to testifying, of course, I, we, I had a conversation with her about what this might mean, how this, this could play out. And 
I, I like, I have to tell, uh, say this, and we need to flag this part for her. It's what she says that's most important to me. That is what drives my, my uh, uh, behavior and my outcomes, honey. It's, it's your opinion. It's your direction, just to be clear. So, <laughs> yes, I, it could have been my wife, my, my daughter. Uh, but no, in reality, I think I knew what I was going to do and I was going to do uh, what, I, uh, what I thought was right, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, you know, that comes from, I mean, a lot of people take oaths. A lot of corruptible people take oaths. There's, there's, uh, we, you, we opened up before we went on the air talking about the, the new piece that just came out about the, the generals, uh, surrounding Flynn that, um, worked in insurgency and are now doing it here in the United States. They all took an oath. Um, uh, same as, same as you, same as me. Um, but if some raised something about it just to make, you know, they don't stick, they don't stick to it. Um, it's interesting they call themselves the Oath Keepers yeah Yeah. Uh, All right. well thank you so much for your time today I really appreciate this everybody needs to pick up a copy Here Right Matters by Colonel Alexander Vindman Uh, what's next for you Alex you gonna run for office yeah uh, I uh, that's funny because that's like not the first time it's come up Uh, uh, you know VA of Virginia just finished its redistricting and uh, it turns out that somehow my uh, there's a new district that's uh, without anybody seated there so now I have all sorts of people have great, great ideas for me. Um, <laughs> but um, well, the first thing that I have just is I, I need to defend my dissertation. And I've tried to put blinders on to everything else that's going on. But I've been a complete failure in that regard because I'm not going to sit on the sidelines when, when uh, you know, this, the, there's a brewing crisis and I have an ability to kind of weigh in on it. And so last week was filled with a bunch of with an op-ed and a bunch of news uh, media engagements. And this isn't going away anytime soon. So it's going to be a big distraction, but my, my goal is to, to uh, you know, finish up my dissertation and then have the bandwidth to move on to do other things. Yeah. And congratulations on that. I, when I, uh, are you going to be defending it like on Zoom? Are you going to be doing it uh, live? Uh, I haven't thought about that. Which we, I don't know if I want to do it as a, sh- like a, a show, just invite all, all, uh, all, everybody to it. Uh, let me see how it goes. <laughs> Mine was... Mine was remote because I was on my honeymoon. And yeah. uh, and so I liked it remote because up, I was wearing a blazer and, a you know, yeah. uh, up, up top. And then I had I had a tutu on uh, nice. on the bottom that you couldn't see. So, yeah, um, yeah good times. But uh, let us know how that goes. I really appreciate your time today. Good luck with the Renewed Democracy Initiative. And um, can't wait to call you Dr. Vinman. Sounds good. Thanks, Allison. As usual, a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Uh, everybody, thank you so much. Until we speak again on January 9th with the with uh, Brian Kloss's book, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter, and our art and web designer by Joel Reader and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.